Everyone, welcome to the Use Guys in That podcast. I'm your host Jay Colo, joined by fellow host Chris G and Angel the Sound Girl, who also operates the soundboard. Board, excuse me. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Use Guys Pod, and you can email us at useguysandthat at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Use Guys Pod. At this moment, I'd like to take uh, a chance to say hello to our listeners. In the following countries, France, a big boost in numbers. Thank you for the downloads. We appreciate your support. Also, Spain, a boost in Australia. Thank you for that. The United Kingdom, Romania, Belgium, Brazil, Greece, the Netherlands, Sweden, and Canada. So thank you very much for your support. We really appreciate it. Uh, today, we uh, have the distinct pleasure of hosting Connor Dragotis, uh, who is the Director of Communications and Development at a law firm. He is also a university adjunct professor. Uh, we're going to talk to him today about uh, his upcoming book, or I think, I don't know if it's published or not, he's going to tell us all about it. It's called Work for Liberty, a resource guide for early and mid-career professionals looking for paid work in the liberty movement. Connor, the floor is yours. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. And uh, an international audience to boot. That's fantastic. Right on. <laughs> so tell us more about your book, sir. Uh, I'd love to, first of all, I'd love to know about the book. I'd also like to know the process of, of how you wrote it, um, also how you got into the liberty movement, all of those things. But I'm really curious to hear about your process of writing. But please tell us all about the book and, of course, all the things, all the things that you have, your book, your articles from your website. They'll be linked in the show notes. So, please, the floor is yours. Take it away. Oh, well, please. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this because uh, I feel like this is a really tough time in the world. For a lot of people, and uh, this is actually a book that really came out of a really tough time. Um, back in 2017, I found myself uh, in in the middle of July uh, with no job um, and with no steady income and no real idea of anything except for the idea that I wanted to be working to advance liberty full time. Uh, you know, previously I had spent a lot of time on political campaigns and. Uh, volunteering, but I really wasn't sure what it meant to work in the liberty movement at all. I didn't even actually really know that a liberty movement existed in any in any real sense uh, from like a professional perspective. Um, but the next six months uh, from there, I actually just spent living off my savings. Uh, I, I committed to myself that I'm never going to take another job again in my life unless it's purpose driven work, uh, helping to advance liberty. And uh, you know, it it took. A long time. Six months is a is a really long time, um, but I ended up landing uh, a job that I love. I'm still there. 
uh, three years later. Uh, and, and it's just, it's a, it's a success story. Um, but about a year ago I started, uh, sorting through some old files and I realized, man, I have a ton of resources, uh, links, uh, uh different, um, recruiters, job portals, where places to find jobs, internships and fellowships. And I figured, you know what, if I went through this, I bet there's someone else out there who could really use this information. And how am I going to go about putting it in a, in a, in a way that, is easy to understand. And what that turned into is this resource guide, uh, which hopefully will help more people find paid work, working for Liberty full time, making the world a little bit of a better place. That's outstanding. Uh, now, what was your process of writing? I'm always curious to see the craft behind the book, so to speak. Uh, do you set a limit for yourself? How many pages per day? Um, how long did it take you to uh, finally get through a rough draft? Did you had did you have certain plateaus that you like to meet certain goals that you like to meet in order to keep I, I don't know if a lot of publishers have deadlines for example mm-hmm. of when you need to get work done um, you know in the modern age luckily with technology you kind of can make your own schedule because there's so many options for you so my curi- my curiosity is definitely towards the process of writing if you wouldn't mind going through that for our audience how you came to write the book, you know, like how you compiled the, uh, the you know, all of your sources, uh, your um, your goals that you set for yourself, whether it was daily, weekly, monthly, whatever it might be in the process of writing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I guess I should clarify and, and I, you know, I want to be really uh, upfront about it. You know, I, I don't feel like I'm a great writer. Um, I don't feel like this is, you know, no one should be going to this book because it's full of amazing prose and you're going to walk away saying, wow, that guy really, really knows how to tell a compelling story. Right. Um, you know, what it what it's aimed to do is, uh, you know, really provide straightforward information. And, and what that process looked like for me uh, ended up being a lot of late nights and a lot of early mornings uh, digging into the the crevices of the internet to make sure that that the resources that I, I, I had were up to date and most accurate. I think the, the hardest part of any project is going to be research, right? It's going to be making sure that that all your ducks are in a row so that the project at the end of the day uh, is going to be value added. Um, and for, for this area specifically, right, in the liberty movement, so we're talking about think tanks, we're talking about uh, some political organizations as well, we're talking about law firms, we're talking about um, you know, jobs on the Hill or in state government as well, uh, student organizations. Um, a lot of these organizations, uh, do a really poor job, uh, promoting their jobs page. Uh, you know, it's hidden in the footer. It's hidden on the back end of their website. I mean, there were another, or a number of organizations that, uh, I really loved. I wanted to be featured in this book in one form or another. And I ended up having to call them and say, Hey, do you guys even have a job board? Um, so really what it came down to uh, in terms of a writing process, though, is at some point you just have to sit down and write. And for me, it was I felt lucky in that the research portion was finding resources and then, you know, telling my my own story. Um, because, you know, on top of this, uh, just a list of resources and organizations, um, I also uh, made sure to include a lot of the information that I, you know, teach at the college level, right? How do you get through interviews? How do you put together a compelling resume? What does a good cover letter look like, right? What are these practical pieces? Um, and then really getting into editing and making sure that, 
at the end of the day, when people look at this, they can walk away and say, all right, hey, this is something I can use, not just something I read and then it's going to get dusty on a shelf somewhere. I think that's excellent. Having a resource guide uh, for people, for example, coming out of undergraduate and maybe not so sure on where to go or what to do. And unfortunately, uh, you know, I'm in the process of getting a master's degree right now, and I know a lot of people in my cohort Unfortunately, they don't have any real-world experience yet. They didn't know, learn how to write a resume too well. Most of their real education, if you want me to call it that, real training came from their undergraduate training, and a lot of that gets bypassed. Of course, you get into more of what your major is. I mean, unless you're an English major, you're going to stick, you know, that's, I'm sure that would be, you know, stuffed in there somewhere. But uh, for uh, political science, for example, a lot of your meat and potatoes, you start with government and politics, and then you get into, you know, um, re how to write a research paper, and they teach you a lot of different things uh, to, um, you know, kind of uh, get control of your craft and begin to master it, so to speak. But getting on to the topic of teaching at a university level, uh, my question was, how did you get into teaching? And, like, what courses do you teach? And do you try to give a liberty-based uh, instruction? Or is the curriculum from your university a little bit more strict? Do you have some leeway on how you educate your students? Things like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to answer your second question first. And, uh, you know, in the classroom, I, f I think it's so interesting because um, when you're teaching these uh, you know, I teach first year students. So this is their first time, uh, you know, oftentimes living away from home. It's their first time really being in control of their own lives. And you see that difference of uh, folks who really go off the rails and, and start to struggle as soon as they're uh, uh, on their own. And you see those students who are, you know, they, they already have their legs under them. Um, but liberty is is in my classroom for sure, um, mostly uh, because there's, there's a lot of, of professors out there who teach with an agenda. And what I try to bring to the classroom is, listen, it doesn't matter what your what your opinions are, but we're going to have an honest conversation about what they mean for business. Uh, and that's what I teach. I teach business communication. So it's not a uh, um, agenda driven, like it's not a political class. Um, but the, the most important thing in the college classroom, uh, and, and in my opinion, uh, and I think you hit on this uh, a little bit about the struggles that some people have with their real world experience is the idea of purpose in work. Um, you know, I was uh, like you, I, you know, I was undergraduate. I was uh, political science and I also uh, had a double major in psychology. Uh, and I took that and applied it to my first job out of college was logistics, right? For Target Corporation. Oh, wow. Uh, helping. Uh, helping move freight, helping, uh, you know, stores function in the retail space. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do because when I study, you know, that just wasn't a focus in my college experience. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a huge miss. Um, it took me, you know, five years and, and, a, and a master's degree, uh, after to actually find uh, purpose in my work. Uh, you know, as I, as I said, taking those six months to really dig into it. Um, but from their very first semester of, of college, I try to talk about uh, a concept called Ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I, which is a Japanese concept that that means a purpose for life, a purpose for living, uh, and really marrying the two ideas of what you're doing for, you know, eight to 12 hours a day at, at work 
if it's not lining up with who you are and what you care about, man, are you going to be miserable, right? Absolutely. <laughs> You're just not going to be happy. Um, it's, it, it's a huge problem in America, but it's especially uh, a, a problem with people uh, who care about liberty because um, most of the time they're not, not working to advance that cause. Uh, I completely agree with you. Um, speak, uh, getting onto the liberty train, so to speak, I'd like to know what your journey was. That tends to be a question that's very uh, common on our show. Is we love to know how you got to where you are right now from the start. Like you know, for example, when did you uh, get bit by the liberty bug? When did it happen? Have you always been that way? Did you have a particular journey that led you to the liberty movement? Things like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I feel very lucky, uh, that I can pinpoint my, uh, opening to, to Liberty movement really to a single moment. Uh, now I was sitting in my car, I was a freshman in college and, um, I was listening to the radio. Uh, I'm sure as a conservative talk show host uh, at some point, you know, just talk radio. And I, I heard this voice on the, on the radio and all of a sudden I'm listening. I'm thinking, man, this guy has some really solid ideas really unique. This is back in, uh, 2010, 2009-ish and, uh, listening, I'm listening. And, uh, it turns out it's governor Gary Johnson oh, talking wow. on national radio and, um, me being, you know, uh, a college uh, freshman at that point, I said, Hey, you know what? This guy's great. I want to talk to him. So I, I went ahead. I actually called his office, uh, in New Mexico and I said, Hey, here's my shtick. Uh, how would you like to pay to send, Gary Johnson across the country to this small school on the East Coast, and uh, yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna pay him. Uh, we're not gonna be able to pay for his travel, uh, but we'll take him out to dinner after. And someone in their office actually went ahead and said, "You know what? Yeah, let's do it." Then and they sent him across the country. He came to speak, uh, and as a result, I ended up getting to sit down and have dinner with Gary Johnson very early in my college career, and it just opened this world for me of, wow, there are people out there who are fighting for principles, who are fighting for liberty. And, you know, I don't agree with Gary Johnson on everything. Uh, you know, my, my journey over the last, you know, 10 years has, has been a long one, but, uh, it, what an amazing friendly intro to a, a worldview, which has really, uh, obviously become a huge part of my life. Uh, that's fantastic. I, you actually said, do you remember, like, do you remember anything from the dinner, like what you ordered or were you kind of st like starstruck a little bit? <laughs> You know, there's a picture of me standing, you know, of course, I had to get my picture taken with him. I'm standing next to him. I got this big, goofy smile on my face. And, you know, he's just such a nice guy. He's just being so kind. He's clearly like, what is up with this kid, uh, you know, who clearly doesn't know anything, right? He's uh, clearly at the beginning of his journey. And uh, uh, he was just, he was an absolute gentleman about it, start to finish. He gave this great talk at the school. And, you know, we managed to pack a room. Uh, uh, at that point, he was uh, just at the beginning of uh, campaigning, I believe, uh, for... Uh, for president, right? This was as he, I think he was exploring. So uh, we just got lucky. Uh, and I feel like I got very, very lucky to, to meet him at that time. That's a fantastic story. Uh, I wanted to ask you about, like you write uh, opinion pieces on your website and all of the links that we're going to talk about will be in the show notes. Uh, the one thing that I really appreciated was from your article that you wrote. It said it first appeared on Free the People. It was back 
on the 9th of this month. Uh, Free the People featured despite SCOTUS. Self-defense is an inalienable human right. I really appreciated this piece that you, uh, this portion. I mean, the whole article is great, but uh, you said, despite the court's denial of cert, every human has the right to protect themselves. This is not a legal argument, but an acknowledgement that there is a moral authority that precedes Washington, D.C., bureaucrats, judicial appointees included. The right to self-defense has existed before this country, before firearms, and will exist long after humans have devised better means to protect themselves. Guns are simply the best method of self-defense currently available. Now, if you, if anybody who's currently listening has listened to the show before, uh, we believe that we should be able to go to Walmart and purchase fully automatic machine guns, and that we consider that to be a moderate position. Uh, we're or rocket launchers. Or <laughs> rocket launchers, yes. Right. I'm not even joking. Yep. It's not, it's not a joke. I every gun law is an infringement. Uh, I wanted to know what do you think this impact? Like for example, you were talking about New Jersey and Maryland law in this particular article. Now, when my wife and I went to Gettysburg just for a little adventure, uh, we uh, I told her to specifically avoid Maryland because now Angel has corroborated this because apparently the Maryland State Police will look for out of state uh, plates. And target them because if you if you're carrying a weapon in the state of Maryland, first of all, they don't have any reciprocity. I think with anybody for a concealed carry permit from any other state, uh, you will go to jail, and you will go to jail for a while. Um, why is it that these states have such draconian gun laws? Is it the liberalism, and I mean like the far left liberalism, or is it because? They have larger population centers, for example, like Jersey City, Newark, Baltimore, and of course they're very close to Washington, D.C. in Maryland. Do you feel that that has something to do with the larger cities, or do you feel that they lack a gun culture, for example, as opposed to Pennsylvania or where we are in Ohio or you know the majority of the country? Yeah, gun gun culture absolutely has something to do with it, and you know I, I think that there is, um, to a certain extent, a bipartisan problem. Uh, around the Second Amendment and that there has just been so much ground given up, right? I mean, you know, uh, Dan Crenshaw, for example, uh, supporting red flag laws uh, and, and getting rid of due process uh, when it when it comes to the Second Amendment. Uh, you know, that's a Republican position now uh, in, in many circles. Um, but I also I think I'd want to clarify, too, that, you know, one of my favorite quotes when I'm talking about uh, the Second Amendment and about liberty to, to protect yourself and, and the right to self-defense is, uh, you know, if you go left far enough, you get your guns back. Um, and I think that that's uh, really true that, you know, on, on the left at some point, um, there are still opportunities to extend an olive branch. Uh, you know, I, I work in, I'm the director of communications uh, and development at the law firm that I work with. Uh, and it's a nonprofit law firm uh, that, that protects people who have been hurt by public sector union officials. Um, but in that in that practice, what I try to keep in mind is that, there's so many opportunities to lead with an olive branch instead of a sword when when you're talking about building coalitions around really important issues, right? Criminal justice reform, for example, there's a multitude of uh, allies on the far left who you might not have much in common with, but you can really do some amazing things. Uh, and I think in the Second Amendment, there are there are still groups on the left. There are uh, everything from blue dog Democrats to uh, folks who are far more radical um, on the left, uh, but who do understand on on some level that self-defense and and firearms uh, are incredibly important. Um, so when these opportunities do arise, when there are states that are uh, falling apart 
because that they have these laws and, and they infringe on on people's rights to self defense. Um, I'd always just say, you know, look for the people who are looking to do good, even if they aren't typically going to align with you. And let's see, you know, see if there's ground to be uh, uh, gained there uh, with that olive branch and, and finding ways to work together. It's funny that you mentioned that uh, Chris Angel and I did a show not too long ago where we, you know, we are very critical of uh, lefties, like very critical. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's from uh, so-called liberals all the way to our brethren, the, well, I don't want to call them our our brethren, but they are (laughs) uh, like the anarcho-communists, for example, syndicalists, Mm -hmm. things like that. And we did have to give props because they're more to your point. There is an organization called the Socialist Rifle Association, and we gave them uh, a shout out because they do not believe in limiting because of course theirs is, is a class oriented outlook on firearm use like you know they co- they quote Karl Marx saying that the working class should, you know I'm paraphrasing of course but the working right. class should never be disarmed and they believe in that mutual aid and you know we Chris and Angel and we had to give them props because you know anybody who believes in self defense and the free access to the tools to defend yourself uh, is not an enemy of mine. I mean, we, we will disagree, obviously, on economics all day long, and they can go, you know, the joke that I we've always said on the show is, like, when they run out of food, we'll sell it to them, you know. But, uh, <laughs> yep. but uh, you know. I love that. I love that. <laughs> when, uh, yeah. we, we don't need to make more enemies than we already have. I mean, if that's the way they want to live, that's fine. But I really always had trouble understanding why the left is so... Like they, they want more government, and we're seeing examples all across the fruited plain what more government looks like when people without guns are met with people who have all of the guns and can do whatever they want to those people who are unarmed. And I, you know, I'm not I'm sure what your experience is, but do you, I mean, maybe you could weigh in. What do you think that is about the left that makes them so anti gun? I'm talking about the ones that we see on television, like Joe Biden it's, wanted to charge 200 bucks to yeah. register a magazine, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that uh, the left is incredible at, uh, that conservatives and libertarians really struggle with, uh, is effective marketing. Uh, you know, we're especially around telling human stories, right? Like uh, when when libertarians and conservatives talk about a policy that they really care about, um, a lot of times what you hear is, well, hey, if you increase X by Y percent, then you're going to get Z results, and you know, you just can you can see people's eyes glaze over because. Uh, presenting data is not always compelling. What, you know, someone like Barack Obama did so well, though, is he got on the stage and he's talking about, hey, little Susie here, by providing this social program or providing this benefit, she's going to grow up to live a better life and, you know, paints this picture. Um, And I think very much on the left, uh, I do blame those who are in power and at the top of the, uh, you know, the the pyramid there uh, on the left for pushing a narrative very effectively about what it means to be a gun owner, what it means to have a gun, and also um, pushing a narrative about how incredibly dangerous and uh, guns are. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, a gun is a piece of plastic and metal. Um, it's not doing anything without a human being behind it. Um, but effective marketing is really where the left has won a lot of battles, but especially on the Second Amendment and self-defense, uh, because they've simply provided a more compelling human story for why guns and the Second Amendment and self-defense are a bad thing. Um, And that's something that libertarians uh, and everyone in the liberty who cares about liberty needs to keep in mind is you're not dealing with robots when you're trying to convince someone of something. You're dealing with a real human being who is flawed like a human being. 
subject to emotional stories and being susceptible to to being compelled um, in a certain way by what they're hearing. Um, it's 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 a battle that needs to be fought on different grounds than conservatives and libertarians have been willing to fight or able to fight so far. Uh, I think that that's very astute. Uh, you know, the question, again, guns seem to be, at least for me, I can't speak for the rest of the group here, but for me, I've always been a barometer. Uh, it's something that I like to judge the mood of the uh, of the regular people, the average people. And uh, according to Statista.com, uh, it says in June 2020, over 1.5 million handguns were sold in the United States. In June 2020, handgun sales grew by 177.5% when compared to the same uh, period the previous year. And there's another article that's uh, from Brookings.edu that said 3 million more guns, the spring of 2020 spike in firearm sales, and that's from the 13th of uh this month and they said the first six months of 2020 19 million firearms were sold uh i it's it's more than one firearm for every 20 americans to me that is very hopeful because i think everybody has been able to witness that uh the police are not there to protect you or your property per se that you and you alone are responsible for the safety of where you live uh, the people that live with you, your property, your business, all of that. And uh, I was just, I wanted to get your take. If you feel uh, that that is a good canary in the coal mine, so to speak, that that is a very good barometer to show the mood of the American people, because I find a lot of promise in those statistics. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I, I, I say a little tongue in cheek, but, you know, the Matthew McConaughey quote from Wolf of Wall Street, right? Those are rookie numbers. You got to pump those numbers up. Right? I mean, we, we, like, we have a way to go. We, American, America has, what, 43, 45% of the world's guns. And there's a good reason for that, right? Is because the access is there by and large. And despite all of these barriers, we still are in a good place in terms of being able to access firearms. And yeah, absolutely. When we see those numbers increase, you know, make sure you're, that you're buying that Ruger stock and then using those dividends to buy more firearms and ammo, right? Um, <laughs> absolutely. You know, see the see the writing there. Um, but yeah, I mean, what we've seen is is a huge increase um, in in people across the country uh, taking more responsibility for the safety of themselves and families, especially around all the things that have happened with uh, police officers and the lack of trust in public institutions. Um, whether or not that sticks. Um, I'll be interested to see. It'll probably have something to do with the election uh, and, uh, you know, whether or not those numbers drop off after. Uh, but uh, anecdotally, uh, you know, I've had people reaching out uh, all the time saying, hey, I'm about to buy my first gun. What would you recommend? Uh, and I, I do think that that's a heartening sign. And, and anybody who's experienced that, who's who's involved in gun culture as a hunter or a collector or just someone who's really enthusiastic about shooting sports, when people make those asks, uh, again, what an amazing opportunity to lead with an olive branch, to go out there, go to the store with them, help them find something, go to the range with them, teach them to be safe, smart shooters. Uh, you know, once someone experiences something like everything else, once it's part of their life, they're going to be very, very hesitant to, to vote in a way or act in a way that infringes on something that they enjoy, love and respect. Uh, while I have you on the topic, if you were like if somebody did approach you and say, hey, Connor, I'm ready to go to the gun store. I want to pick something out. Uh, what would you recommend? Uh, there, there isn't a wrong answer, of course. I just want to get <laughs> your take on what you would recommend for a novice shooter uh, who's looking to go and purchase a firearm for the first time. 
You know, I got to say, I'm a sucker for the uh, the Rugers uh, and the 9mm. Ruger uh, LC9 is just a really great, easy-to-use, easy-to-clean gun. Uh, I don't think you can go wrong with something uh, like that for like 130 to 170 bucks. That isn't a bad price at all. I mean, I automatically, I I guess I go past the handgun, and I'm like, well, what you need is both an AR-15 and an AK-47 with drum mags, okay? Steel tips. Let's get ready. You know, you when the, when they come, you know, when you call the cops, you yep. want them to need to bring a mop, so you know, be yep. ready. Um, I always find yeah, that interesting. I, go ahead, Chris. I, I did the same thing. There was a, a buddy of mine at work that I. Uh, he was actually, I, you know, he knew I was like into guns and, and same scenario. He like came to me and, uh, you know, asked, you know, Hey, Hey, what you recommend? And Jay, I, I did the same thing, man. Like, I'm like, I'm like, well, what you really need? I was like, you need uh, you know, I recommend handguns. And I'm like, well, if you want to go for a concealed carry, you might want to consider maybe getting a subcompact. I was like, but what you really need, you need some home defense weapons. I was like, an AR-15 would be fantastic. Or, or you could look for like a nice tactical shotgun. Like I gave him this whole spiel. <laughs> <laughs> I do the same thing, man. I'm just like default. Like you need this, 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 and this. And then after you do that, you need this. So uh, <laughs> he actually he actually wound up getting. I think he got a a, a a Glock, is what he wound up getting. But he was like he was just like testing the waters. Like he's he's an older dude. It surprised me because he's a conservative fella. So it really surprised me that he didn't already own firearms. So so he just him and his wife went out. You know they both wound up getting uh they both wound up getting like Glock, uh nine millimeters. So. But yeah, just like I said, just a funny story. I had to throw that in there. I love that. Also, it's great to see people. You know, sometimes pushing someone in the deep end of the pool means that they're going to find their footing at whatever level, you know, whatever level they're comfortable with. So, I mean, it's great and it can lead to so much education and so much excitement, too, as people realize, exactly. hey, wow, this world is bigger than I thought it was uh, in shooting sports uh, across the board. No, I couldn't. I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, what's interesting is I tell this story all the time. My father is uh, 88 years old. And he carries concealed, and we've gone to the range and stuff. And I started teaching. I have a 17-year-old, and I his first two firearms that he shot the same day, I let him shoot a uh, Walther P22 because I was like, okay, you know, stand behind him and hold his arms and make sure, you know, you know, doing what a responsible father does and make sure that his kid can shoot but shoot safely. And the second gun he shot was uh, was the AR-15, and he's had a love affair with it ever since. But when you take my son to the range, and you compare him to some of the folks that either just got started. Or people like my father, who apparently really don't care about anybody else's safety on the range. Uh, like, you know, the finger off the trigger until you're ready to fire. Man, my kid's discipline is absolutely on point. My, my father will turn around and look at you with a finger on the trigger and be like, hey, you know, and you have to push his hand towards, you know, the, uh, the, the, towards the range where it belongs before we get kicked out of there. Uh, I think it's really important for a lot of people who have kids, you know, not to shy away from the firearm. The firearm's not going to do anything unless it's manipulated, as you already said. And uh, gun safety starts real early, man. It starts mm -hmm. real early. It has to be drilled into individuals as kids. Like, this isn't a toy. This is a weapon. And also, where your, where your finger needs to be, that is the most egregious sin I see at the range uh, when I go is individuals who keep that finger on the trigger. Trigger man, discipline. You know, yeah, it has to be there. It is absolutely important, especially if you're going to carry a weapon anywhere. I mean, knowing all of those things are really important. And gun culture is incredibly uh, an incredibly powerful teacher because once you get involved mm -hmm. with the community, you will pick up on those things. I mean, it is absolutely like written in stone, almost like the Ten Commandments. So um, right. I, I really appreciate that. Now, let me ask you this. 
uh, Connor, you did also did an article about Google throttling Second Amendment-related uh, items. Uh, now, let me ask you this. this. Do you look at this as more of a hurdle? Because clearly from some of the data that we've seen that despite the efforts of the state or the corporations in the state working together to suppress the rights of individuals, it seems that it, it, that it's not slowing down the train. Now, do you think that this is just a minor blip because of the situation that we find ourselves in, or do you think that this is a long-term thing that this will have, th this is null and void in a sense? Like it's, it might be a minor inconvenience for those who are advertising, maybe a little bit on their bottom line. But as a whole, do you feel that we are still going to be in a great position regardless of what search engines do to, um, I guess, you know, uh, uh, you know, train folks to, or at least detour folks away from what they're looking for? Yeah, it, it, that's a tough question to answer uh, just because there's, you know, organizations like Google have so much power. Um, but at the same time, I do believe that they're susceptible to uh, the the will of the of the people, right? I mean, market forces are too pow are incredibly powerful. And even if you're the most, uh, if you're the biggest company in the world, if people stop using you, you're gonna go under. Um, and I think again, you know, it, it definitely gets back to that public pressure right now. Um, so as organizations like Google continue to do that, uh, you know, we saw what happened to Dick's Sporting Goods, though. Uh, you know, they have dropped off the face of the earth uh, in terms of revenue, in terms of their uh, sustainability as a business since they uh, became uh, anti to, to Second Amendment. Um, but on the other side of that, too, I, also, I think I want to, I guess, challenge a little bit the idea of whether or not it's going to make a difference in the long term um, for Second Amendment. Like, there are always going to be people who, who say, oh, my gosh, the— the Google told me uh, I shouldn't have a gun or the government told me I shouldn't have a gun. Uh, so I'm not going to uh, out of fear. But I think uh, there's a lot of reasons why gun control is already dead. Uh, you know, there are just so many guns. We can produce guns, uh, ghost gunning, right? From the comfort of your own home, people can can create uh, guns. And I think the other the other piece there is that human exchange, right? That amazing gun culture of uh, which really I, I, I genuinely believe that so much of gun culture is about caring for your family, caring for your neighbors, caring for your community, being able to protect those uh, who who need to be protected in, in some of their worst moments. Uh, and I think because there are so many guns out there and this community is so strong, uh, even if the the public perception swings so hard, even if they somehow did away with uh, the Second Amendment, there's still just going to be so much good in the world of people stepping up, willing to help each other, willing to protect each other. Um, I, I, I'm an optimist, and I've been, t I've been told that that's a crazy, crazy mindset to take, but uh, I'm still optimistic about the future of guns and the future of self-defense in this country. I don't think there's anything wrong with being an optimist. And, you know, there's a lot of what no, you said I think is 100% right, especially with 3D printing. There's a fellow on Twitter. I can't remember his uh, his uh, Twitter handle, but I know that he's changed his, uh, his name to Ivan of the Fields, for example. And he <laughs> is 3D printing AR lowers. Uh, he is uh, he's actually printed lowers for his AK-47. And, you know, he... Uh, quotes the tweets of people that say that after two rounds it explodes in your hand and he is just burning through mags with this with this rifle and I find that incredibly promising like you said because now once you have 3D printing anything you pass is null and void no matter what the state mm -hmm. does it's 100% yep. yeah. null and void like we could do whatever you, we want you can't stop the signal no you can't 
That's 100% right. So uh, I think that optimism is warranted. You know what I mean? And I hope that um, regardless of what the state does, because the state's going to do whatever it wants, regardless of what we do, but it should be a huge warning flag to the state when you have those kind of firearm sales, especially in the midst of so much unrest, that people understand what, what their responsibilities are, and they also understand that they're finally coming to that conclusion that their officials, these people, are not there to protect them, that they are not going to protect them and their property or their investments, like their businesses, for example. So I think that, that is a, it's a great point. It is very promising, and uh, I hope that uh, the expansion of these gun rights continue because, like you said in your article, it predates any written law. It doesn't matter what you have on the books. Like the, like the Second Amendment, the, the verbiage, everything, yeah, sure, I, I understand. That's, it's, it's great. It's, it's great. I get it. But do you do you need that to be a firearm owner or to own a bow, bow and arrow or, or to own a spear or a knife? No, because your existence and the existence of self, you know, the, the right to self-defense predates organized uh, government. It predates everything. It, it predates the tribe. You know, when you you know, for for our ancestors that fought off uh, you know saber toothed tigers thousands of years yeah. ago, you had a right to, to to fight back against anything and anyone who tries to hurt you with the tools like the highest tech that you could possibly get your hands on. So um, I, that's why I was really a huge fan of that article you wrote, and I'm really grateful for it. Uh, I do want to turn it over well, to you. Angel. Uh, she had a question uh, that she wanted to uh, to uh, talk to you about. So Angel, the floor is all yours, please. I just had a question in regards to you are the director of communications for the law firm, you said, correct? Yes. So what does that entail? What what do you do as far as outreach goes? Yeah. So, you know, I like to say, uh, you know, as I mentioned, it's a it's a 501c3 uh, nonprofit law firm. So we represent all of our clients for free Um, and and where our where our lawyers uh, help our clients win in the court of law. Uh, my job is to help our clients win in the court of public opinion. Um, you know, it's it's incredibly important, especially when you're dealing uh, like we do with uh, individuals who have been hurt by public sector union officials. Uh, these might be individuals who are the only uh, person in their bargaining unit or, you know, teachers, the only individual in their school who are standing up for their constitutional rights. Uh, and there's a huge amount of pressure there. Um, so, uh, being able to tell their story in the public eye, so they know that they're not alone, um, being able to, uh, whether that's through video, uh, you know, producing three to five minute videos where they explain in their own words, what's going on in their case or, uh, writing op-eds, uh, getting articles written that, that accurately describe what's going on, um, in the case. Uh, I think it's so easy to see, you know, name versus state, uh, or so-and-so versus so-and-so and think, oh, that's a clever, you know legal title for a case. Uh, but it's really important and it's difficult for people to remember that underneath that it's a real human person who's having their rights violated, who's being hurt. Uh, and, and we help, uh, on the communication side of things, tell that story. Uh, so people understand that it's a real human being impacted, not just some piece of paper in a courtroom. Yeah. Do you often, find clients that come to you guys or do you do you sort of like seek them out uh that's a great question you know i'm not really on the the legal acquisition side um but from what i've uh, what folks have told me like current clients have told me is a lot of folks uh you know end up google searching hey uh you know uh my rights are being violated or uh, something like that and they find us or 
um, they're referred by previous clients who say, hey, I went through this and, and I got all my money back or, or I was able to get my rights protected. You should also talk to this law firm uh, and get and, and get that as well. Oh, that's really cool because my next question was, do you often see the clients, do they win the case against these unions? Because sometimes it's rigged for the unions kind of to win. Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, I'm not, I don't have the uh, numbers like uh, in terms of win percentage. Uh, what I can't say is that, you know, uh, in a large number of cases that we've been able to get clients all their money back or, or help them successfully disaffiliate from a union that they don't want and don't need. You know, we work uh, particularly uh, exclusively actually just in the public sector too. So it's, it's only government unions uh, and when government union officials uh, get out of line and, and they abuse individuals, we step in and um, despite the, the, the size of these, uh, organizations that are violating these people's rights, by and large, I've found that the, the courts, uh, are, are good at protecting people's rights as soon as you get into the details and actually explain to them what's going on. And, and, you know, a lot of times there are laws on the books or rules on the books that already directly prohibit the, the behavior that's happening. Do you find a lot of these unions kind of commit the same atrocities? Uh, actually, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> atrocities is, is, uh, a little bit, you know, some of these cases are, uh, really just over, you know, small amounts of money or, uh, about constitutional rights. So, you know, atrocities is, is tough. Like, um, you know, we haven't, uh, had to deal with any cases that are, you know, uh, like physical violence or anything like that, uh, to my knowledge. Um, but, you know, we just released a case this morning, actually, a, a press release that came out at 6 a.m., uh, where uh, it was the sixth lawsuit filed against the same union over the same issue. Um, so unfortunately, uh, there are a lot of places, uh, a lot of people who are having their rights violated, and it's just nice to be part of an organization that can help. Yeah. Um, I had read in the news a while back that a lot of these teachers' unions protect some of these like sexual predators that are working, and they kind of like you know, get them to be able to have their pension and, or retire and, and get a little bit of a settlement and money. And it kind of all gets like pushed under the rug and they don't really get charges filed against them. So I was just curious if you ever had to deal with anything like that. Yeah, uh, not in my time with the firm. What I will say, though, uh, is if any of your listeners uh, are in that situation, uh, you know, definitely reach out to our legal team and, and request free legal help. Um, you know, uh, look up my name um, and, and, and uh, reach out. Um, I'll be sure to share um, the, the link with, with you guys so, so you can make sure that people are there. Um, that's not a situation I have to deal with. But obviously, uh, if you have been hurt by a public sector union official, um, please reach out and request free legal help and our legal team will at least take a look and see if you have a case. Okay. Here's a question for you while we're on the topic of unions and, uh, you know, the, the, the term, the, I guess, uh, unions in general, uh, don't enjoy a favorable opinion in our community. Well, especially if you're right libertarian, for example, left libertarians are, you know, feel a little bit differently and I'm not being critical about them at all. I mean, we're all kind of aiming at the same target, so to speak. We might have different motives after everything is, after the dust is settled. But how do you feel about unions? Because, you know, for example, we were talking about before we got 
on the show here that uh, I'm part of a union that uh, vote in order to uh, keep my job and to keep uh, the job of the rest of the bargaining uh, the uh, bargaining employees. Uh, we had to take a one percent pay uh, uh, cut in pay, excuse me, and. I always was under the impression, now, the union, I'm not going to mention who it is, but uh, we also have a lot of uh, people that work for uh, AT&T and T-Mobile. I'm going to leave it at that. And uh, instead of fighting for workers, they seem to have bent the knee towards the corporation. Now, I also understand that people, once again, they have very strong feelings about it, but if you're paying dues towards a union, that union should be obligated to not compromise as much as possible, saying I'm not going to let my employees take a cut, I'm not going to let this happen, X, Y, and Z. How do you feel about unions in general, like especially from a liberty point of view? Like, I, I'd love to hear what your what your impression is of them. Yeah, uh, man. For I guess first of all, man, that's a that's something definitely. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of stuff in there for a lawyer to take a look at. I mean, I don't really have an opinion on unionism in general. I mean, I wrote a piece that appeared in the Washington Examiner um, that was titled Respect the Right to Unionize and to Resign Union Membership. And, I, you know, because uh, uh, there's a difference, yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar at all with the private sector union space at all. Um, really, at the end of the day, it's just it should be about fairness and, and having rights respected across the board in, in all circumstances. I felt for a little bit when this whole thing kicked off, uh, this uh, pandemic situation that we're still in after flattening the curve uh, so many weeks ago, uh, besides the point, I, I felt that this was a good opportunity for unions to really step up because you did have a lot of workers who were frontline people, for example, people who worked for grocers, delivery people, truck drivers, things like that. I thought that this would be a good opportunity for labor unions to really flex their muscle again, at least to increase the amount of members that they have, you know, perhaps like the Teamsters, you know, people who were driving truck. I know that the UPS drivers are represented by Teamsters. But I think that um, it seems that that I don't want to say this because I'm not once again, I'm not trying to be offensive or anything to anyone, any of our listeners, but Maybe that time for the the old school unions has disappeared and maybe we're going to see something new. I, I don't know, but it definitely doesn't seem like they're stepping up where they need to be. Now, of course, the IWW, the industrial workers of the world, are always doing what they do. And for, they don't have many members, but the, whatever they have, they use. But, you know, large unions like the SCIU, uh, you know, the Teamsters, Communication Workers of America, they don't seem to be doing much for the employees anymore. And uh, it's always it's it's a very difficult issue for a lot of people in the liberty movement because it's controversial, because once you mention unions, you automatically get moved to the left, per se. And I don't right. think that's necessarily fair, because I do believe unions have a place as long as they are because the original intent of a union was to protect its workers from being abused by bosses. But unfortunately, it seems like a lot of your due money goes to people getting boats and having vacation houses and not exactly taking care of the people who are paying those dues. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, to be honest, I don't really take money stances, partially because of the nature of my job, right? Because uh, I work in this area, I don't really have many personal opinions on unions. Uh, my scope is really just so narrow to our mission, which is just protecting those who have been hurt by public sector union officials that the other side of it is uh, perhaps a little bit lost on me uh, along the way. Well, that's fair enough. Now, let me ask you this. We... Chris is uh, on his way up here at some point in time to borrow a myriad of books from the J. Colo Library. And we always love to get recommended texts for people 
uh, for on a, on you know a variety of topics uh, and subjects. Do you have any books that you read that really impacted you, you know, on, on a real deep level? It could be for the Liberty Movement, it could, for whatever. Like, what are your favorite, what are your favorite most impactful uh, books that you've read in your life? Yeah, you know, I think the, uh, the number one book most impactful in my life is going to be uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, um, which uh, is written by a guy named uh, Persig. Uh, is the last name there. And um, he writes a story about him and his son on a motorcycle trip uh, across the country. And I think it's incredibly valuable, both uh, for the idea of liberty uh, and also just general for moral philosophy, because it really uh, helps you realize that there are different types of people in the world. And this whole thing is framed around uh, how someone approaches motorcycle maintenance, uh, whether they're, you know, the type of person that takes it to a shop or they need to know the inner mechanisms of it, of the machine themselves. But uh, really just an incredible book that that deals with family, that deals with uh, the state of America and also takes a real close look at, uh, you know, an inquiry into values, uh, which is absolutely worth the read for anybody who's who who jumped at that thought. Excellent. I appreciate it. Uh, Chris, do you have anything? I'm going to throw it out to the floor. Anybody else have any other questions? Yeah, actually, I was uh, I was, I was just sitting here reading uh, your uh, a recent article that you posted on Twitter about the about the how felon titled "Felons Deserve Rights." Yes. Um, which great article. Um, I really like how you kind of destroy the uh, you destroy the uh, the common argument of uh, you know if you're not doing anything illegal, then you have nothing to worry about, um, w- which is brilliant. Um, so I, I guess so. Maybe small story, you know. Follow up with a question. So, um, like I find, like in my personal experience, I guess <clears throat> maybe when I was younger and, and not quite as educated on the subject, that I didn't. I guess I didn't always feel sympathy for for people who were felons in, in my younger years, and, and mistakenly so. So um, now, is this something that you? you know, arrive to over time? Um, or have you always kind of had like that stance, uh, towards, uh, you know, like, you know, with felons rights and whatnot? No, you know, I, I wish I could say that I, I had that kind of insight as a, as a younger person, but I think I, I definitely as a kid thought, Hey, you know what? Don't break the law. If you're not breaking the law, uh, then, you know, everyone who's in jail probably broke the law and is probably a bad person. You know, I didn't have that that scope of the world. And as I got older, I think I realized that, uh, man, there are a lot of laws, man. There are a ton of different ways that, that people can get in trouble. And, and that's really tough. And, and, um, you know, it's such, it's so big. And I think I, I even mentioned it in that article that you're referencing, but, uh, back in 2013, uh, Congress did a study that, you know, they were, they put together a task force that said, uh, you know, can you, uh, account for all federal crimes? And the agency actually came back and said that they lack the manpower to accomplish that task. Wow. So the federal government couldn't even come up with their own set of rules. And that was a really big eye opener for me back in 2013 to say, you know what, if if they can't even keep track of the rules, how could any reasonable person be expected to know that? to know every, every rule, every law. And, and, you know, there's a, a great book, I think it's called like three crimes a day, three felonies a day, something like that. Uh, but it's basically around the concept that the average American on any day commits three felonies. Um, and, and really my point in this article was the penalties around being a felon are, are crazy. And, you know, some of the laws out there are nuts. 
Um, I think I, I, I wrote it. I just brought the, uh, the article up here, but, um, you know, it's a felony to bring a cucumber out of the Carolinas. Are you serious? You use your oh. rights to hold a job, to live in certain neighborhoods, to serve on a jury, to adopt children, to care for your own children. Um, you'd lose your right to bear arms, right? You can lose all of those. Felony. And imagine because you broke some silly rule like wearing, not wearing water shoes while importing primates or bringing a cucumber out of the Carolinas, right? Like these, some of these laws are just out of control. This is, is that for real a law? Like you can't bring a cucumber mm-hmm. out of the Carolinas? Is that? Yeah, it actually is. And I have the, uh, I actually cited the uh, statue in the article as well on uh, connordragotis.com. Uh, you can check that one out because uh, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Oh yeah, that's going in the show notes. That's, that's brilliant, <laughs> right? But yeah, what if it's... you eat a cucumber and then you like leave the Carolinas? Does that count? That is a good. <laughs> we got to get a lawyer on here, right? Yeah, uh, I was say you might need a lawyer for that one. Exactly it. Yeah, uh, but yeah, just just that point, right? I mean, the law is so complex; it's so huge. If the government can't keep track of it, um, and and more importantly, when it comes to protecting people's rights, and all people deserve to have their fundamental human rights protected, I don't care who you are, due process, right to self defense, uh, human beings deserve those those rights, um, and and if you're at risk of losing them, uh, that's that's a problem, uh, yeah, start to finish. Yeah, I thought it was a bit of a, a shocking statistic that you pointed out in there that uh, so 2.3 million people in prison and approximately 230,000 of those are innocent. Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> it is. Yeah, you know, obviously, you know, as I mentioned a couple times, you know, I'm not an attorney, that, but I have, I have a passion for the law. And when I look at this, you know, Americans care about criminal justice reform. It's finally a bipartisan issue. And um, when you look at it, there are just too many people who are being tossed in jail or uh, dealing with plea deals uh, that result in them being behind bars when they're innocent. Or or certainly, you know, I think we just need to break the stereotype that felon equals bad person because it's absolutely not true. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're only guilty of taking a cucumber out of the Carolinas. <laughs> unreal. Exactly. Unreal. Uh, yeah, I, that is unreal. I have to ask you this while we're on the topic of law. Um, obviously, you lo- anybody listens to the show, once again, you, everybody knows where we stand as far as what we think, what law should be there. And we'll leave it to n- not many, uh, if, if any. But I, I, want, I wanted to leave, uh, ask you this. There's a popular vein within the uh, freedom, uh, the, the, the freedom movement, the liberty movement, uh, libertarians of all stripes who believe in no victim, no crime, I mean, you know, that, the, that property crime can be uh, uh, met with restitution, um, things like that. Do you agree with that? Do you agree that if there isn't a victim, including yourself, like, for example, if you're shooting smack under a bridge, if you're even the only victim of, you know, doing something like that, that that isn't a crime. It's only when you either take things that don't belong to you or when you do physical harm to someone. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess the the answer is really it's in a gray area um, because it just inherent to the world we're working with imperfect information, right? So if you were to hold someone to that standard, what you'd have to account for is, oh, well, you know, uh, someone's, you know, the, I think it's a stereotypical example, but the factory that's putting uh, toxins into the air, right? Do you do do you, is the burden of proof then on the harmed individual who has six weeks to live because of uh, some terrible cancer that they got to, you know, 
develop and, and do the research and, and do the investigative work to prove that case themselves? Or is there a system in place to do that? I mean, there, I, I'm, I'm open to the idea and I like it in, in theory, but I also think that uh, you, a lot of the ideas and liberty that are most likely to win are those that are can be realistically translated from where we are right now, right? We live in a in the real world. We don't live in a bubble, and we have to look for ways to make liberty compelling. Um, and when people only stick to this perfect world idea, man, is it fun to talk about when you're having a few drinks and you're hanging out at night and 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 doing that? But at the same time, if it, is it really going to make a difference? if no one can see your vision become a reality. Um, and I think that's, that's really the future of liberty is finding ways to, to help liberty win and make liberty succeed uh, by, by finding realistic solutions that, that, are, that can be told in a compelling way from where we are right now to where we want to be. Excellent. Uh, I appreciate that point of view. Uh, once again, I'll throw it out to the floor. If anyone else has a question for Connor, please uh, go ahead. Angel, you good over there? I'm good. Okay, how about you, Chris? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, excellent. I guess we'll wrap it up then. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank you, Connor Dragotis, to, uh, for coming on to our show. Uh, you can find him on Twitter. He is at CDDragotis, uh, one word. Uh, his website is connordragotis.com. Uh, please check him out. Uh, we really it's, it was a real sincere pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. I'd also like to take this opportunity for a special shout out to our friend down under, uh, known as Anarcho Australian at JT Liberatus. Thank you very much for being a supporter of the show. Also, our friend Paul B from Beat Town, and I'd like to specifically uh, shout out to Meme Mayhem Sticker Store. They are producing stickers right now, and they'll be on Instagram. The picture, uh, his name is Duncan Lemp. They're producing stickers for him that go directly to his GoFundMe. It's a fundraiser. And also for Mike Dunn, once again, everybody knows here we're not, we're not Boog people. We're not Boogaloo folks. But we do appreciate uh, what Mike Dunn did bringing uh, uh, folks from different backgrounds together in the idea of being armed for liberty. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, regardless of whether you're wearing a Hawaiian shirt or not. It means nothing to us. It's what you did. So uh, if you would like to support them, that would be great. Uh, huge shout out to them. Once again, Connor. Thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate your time, and uh, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for uh, the articles you produce. And no matter what he said at the beginning of the show, he does write really well, and the articles mm -hmm. will be in our show notes. So thank you once again, sir. Hey, huge thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Yep. All right. That's it from me, uh, your host, uh, along with my other host, Chris G., and Angel the Sound Girl running the soundboard. Thank you very much for your support. We will see you again very shortly in a week. Bye. Peace. Woo!